each and every day we get upon this earth is soaked with meaning and purpose. The challenge is we get so used to the routine, so lulled by the mundane, our days start to blend together and fade with familiarity. If we're not careful, we can look back and realize we've wasted what we've been given. But if we could begin to understand the brevity of this life, the eternal implications of how we live now, we can start to live our lives with deeper purpose and urgency. Each day becomes a possibility for purpose. Each moment becomes an opportunity for meaning. The book of James calls us to live out this brief moment we've been given upon this earth with wisdom, with urgency, with significance. It beckons you, don't waste your life. Like Jason said, my name is Skylar Elmer. I'm the new lead pastor over at Cornerstone Church. We meet uh, in the gymnasium of an elementary school, and we've been doing that for about 20 years, and it's fantastic. Um, I was born and raised here in Gresham. I went to Gresham High School, had a lot of memories, and there may be people in here that know me. I know when uh, Nolan was here, he told lots of stories. And so I just want to begin by saying, I'm sorry, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for, you know, whatever stories you heard or maybe um, how, you, how you knew me, if you did, um, but it is so good to be here with you. Um, at, at our church, we pray for you guys nonstop, constantly. We are absolutely um, overwhelmed and thrilled with what God is doing here at Rise, so um, thanks for letting me be here just to share God's word with you. Let me go ahead and introduce you to my family. Um, I have three kids and a wife. Uh, my wife is Stephanie. You can see her right there. We've been married 11 years. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have three kids. Judah is sitting on her lap. Judah is, he'll be three really soon, which is just mind-blowing. Uh, that guy is just a, an adrenaline junkie. He's kind of a really bloody child. And when I say bloody, I just, I really mean bloody. I mean, he's just constantly an adrenaline junkie getting hurt. I don't know what it is between uh, him and our other two, but we were able to keep our other two relatively safe. Judah is just like off the charts, an adventure getting hurt. It's just, it's wild. Uh, Augustine, our, uh, he's also a lot of fun, pulls pranks, stuff like that. Augustine, she is seven years old. She loves talking with people. She, she'll sit down and she'll just talk your ear off, ask you all kinds of questions, really sweet. And then Titus, our middle child, he is five years old and his favorite thing to do is to wrestle dad or to go on adventures in the wild to find um, all kinds of creatures, frogs, you name it. And as I am growing as a husband and a father, one of the things that I am learning is that I learn what to do based on not doing certain things. Uh, here, let me give you an illustration. A few weeks, a few months back, I had the brilliant idea of I know how I'm going to get my kids to clean the house. I know how I'm going to get them to do this. I am going to enter into their imagination, their imaginary world, and I'm going to reward them, right? They say the behavior you want repeated, reward that, right? And so I thought I know what my kids love. They love ice cream. They love ice cream. Lots of parenting wisdom packed into this. So here's my problem. 
I don't have ice cream. I don't have ice cream anywhere in my house. And so here's what I did. I called my kids. I said, guys, 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 come here, come here, come here. And then, you know, they, they gathered around. Um, I said, guys, I, if you clean up the whole, whole house, the living room and the dining room, I will get you, here it is, imaginary ice cream. I mean, they were stoked. I, as soon as the words imaginary ice cream left my lips, they darted. They ran to pick up the living room. I mean, they picked up everything. I didn't know that they knew where everything belonged, but apparently they do. They, they put it in the right spot. And my problem is um, Reason, a.k.a. my wife Stephanie, was not in the room to kind of help negotiate this dramatic situation that I was creating for myself. And so Stephanie is in the bedroom putting Judah to sleep and and my kids finished up, and as soon as they finished cleaning up, they ran into the kitchen where I was, and I didn't realize the hornet's nest that I was whacking, so I walked over to the pantry, I opened the pantry, I pulled some bowls out, I opened the drawer, I grabbed some spoons, I grabbed an ice cream scoop, <laughs> and, I, I, and I opened the freezer, act like I grabbed you know, the ice cream jug, and, and I just began to scoop, plopped it in, scoop, plopped it in. My... <laughs> My kids are confused. They're like, what is dad doing? And so Titus, he walks over, he opens a freezer. He's looking, he goes, there's no ice cream here. And as soon as they, it dawns on my kids, dad doesn't have ice cream. I mean, they lose it. They lose their mind. There's bursts of um, just being hysterical. They are yelling at me. They are crying uncontrollably. And my daughter looks at me with this look of betrayal in her eyes. And she said, dad, you lied to me. You've never lied to me before. <laughs> and in the midst of this, Stephanie walks out of the bedroom in this active crime scene. She's trying to piece together what in the world is going on. And so I decided I'd explain my brilliant plan to her. And guys, you're not going to believe it, but as soon as I voiced out loud what my plan was, I realized that it sounded better in my head than it did in, uh, uh, out loud. And Stephanie confirmed that that was not my brightest moment as a parent. You know, sometimes we learn what to do by doing things that we should not do. The bottom line is that if, uh, if you're going to give your ice cream, uh, give ice cream to your kids as a reward, make sure that you have it and that it's not imaginary ice cream because it only creates chaos. Only creates chaos. No one likes chaos. No one likes it. And this is true for adults. This is also true for kids. Most of us, we struggle through life when there's chaos. We struggle in our jobs when there's chaos going on. We struggle relationally with chaos. And when things are chaotic, we fixate on how we can bring order back into our life. Chaos, it drives us to be control freaks we obsess over controlling our plans, controlling budgets, controlling people because we don't like the unsettled feeling of chaos. High school students who are going to graduate, they, they fear the chaos of what happens after I graduate. What happens when um, I, I, I get into the world and there's nothing for me, there's nothing for me to do. Or what's worse is what happens if I get into the wrong path in life? Toddlers, <laughs> toddlers, um, they hate their routines being thrown off. It creates chaos for them <laughs> and the home. Parents, we are paralyzed when our kids run in the opposite direction from how we were raised. Employees, we, we fear chaos. 
of what would happen if we get replaced or we get let go. And on we can go with scenarios about how we don't like things to be in a state of chaos and disorder. So what do we do? We, we chase after control. And that is exactly what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, we're going to be in James chapter 4, starting in verse 13 all the way through 17, as we continue our series through the book of James. Now, the book of James is an amazing book. It is just dripping with wisdom on every page. It's telling us how we can live with purpose and not waste our life. But if I can be honest with you for a moment, one of the easiest most common ways that we are held back from following God fully is because of our need to take control over our lives. In fact, this is almost a guaranteed way to waste your life, is to try to control your life. And we're going to see James speak into this very issue. So if your Bible's open, James chapter 4, look at verse 13 with me. James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So James is directing his attention at a group of elaborate business people who have these ex extensive travel plans. And as, as some, he has some strong words. If you just look a couple verses down, you'll see James has some really strong words for this group which uh, this sounds unnecessarily harsh if you look at this, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like James is coming off against planning, against earning a living, almost like he is just advocating for a life of winging it, which I'm sure there are some in here who, who would give a hearty amen <laughs> to, to the lifestyle of winging it. But that's not what James is talking about. In the first century, the ones who had the ability to make these extensive travel plans, as James describes, are those who were merchants. Some of the wealthiest people in the Roman Empire were those who were merchants or those who owned land. And what James is coming out against is, is not necessarily um, this group who's making all of these plans. The beef that James has is the arrogant posture that is coming across in their planning uh, in the Greek, all of the verbs in this first verse are all statements of fact. And so these Christians, these Christian merchants, they're not expressing what they hope happens because of their planning. They're uh, expressing what they know is going to happen because of their plans. They just know for a fact, here is what is going to come our way because of our well-planned life. Now, some may ask, well, why is that bad? I mean, Shouldn't we be confident about the plans that we make? I mean, after all, isn't that the point of making plans? Like, we don't make plans so that we can be unsure about what's going to happen in our life. We make plans so we can be confident about our life. So what's wrong with that? Well, the thing that's kind of frustrating for James is not what they, it's not that they're planning, it's, that they, it's what they're deliberately overlooking. It's what they're leaving out of their plans that is really concerning for James. Look at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James sits the believers down here and he wants to have a heart to heart. He wants to have this kind of reality check. And the reality check he wants them to have is to understand the limits of being human. 
And so he illustrates this by describing two areas of of limits, and that is our knowledge, that is ignorance and frailty. In a sense, what James is telling these believers and what he's telling us today is this. You are not God, and chaos is unavoidable. You cannot avoid it. cannot avoid it. We don't know the future. We have no idea what's coming tomorrow. We, we can't predict this. We have no idea what tomorrow holds. We don't even have control of our own bodies. Our bodies are subject to illness. They're subject to weakness. Um, at some point, your body is just going to start drooping and start aching, right? We don't have control over our own bodies. We might plan to go into the office tomorrow and end up in an ambulance being rushed to the hospital. We just don't know. We don't. Life is unpredictable. Life is out of our ability to control it. If, if we were God, we would know the future. We would be able to control the future. We would be able to determine what we did with our own life. But because we're humans, we can't. And if we walk around with a sort of inflated view of ourselves and our plans, we are living in a fantasy land, and James is waking them up. But what is it that drives our need, this deep need that we have as humans for control? I think oftentimes it's, it's a result of our fear of chaos. We don't like chaos. And if we accept the fact that we are ignorant and frail as humans, it means we have to admit that chaos is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. You may have seasons, you may have moments of uh, stability in your life, but it won't last <laughs> and it's not a guarantee to you. The world that we live in doesn't care about our rights, it doesn't care about our plans, it doesn't even care about our resumes and our achievements. And so if the only thing that we are determined to live for is this life, our good experiences, making all kinds of achievements, then it's like we are investing our life savings into a bankrupt system that is only going to disappoint you and rob you in the end. <laughs> what a cheery message, eh? <laughs> but we cannot miss James' point. Because oftentimes when we talk about our own limits as humans, that seems like, it seems kind of taboo, but our human limits, that is not the issue. Oftentimes it is our arrogance that's the issue. And the believers there, they need this reality check because their arrogance over their life is what is running their life. And so James, he uses the imagery of life being like a vapor, like a mist to convey our limits, our frailty as humans. That the moment you see mist, the moment you see the vapors, it vanishes from sight. And James goes, look, if you can see your life on um, the, the timeline of eternity, you are but a blip that's there and then it vanishes. But vapor is not just this sort of passing thing. Vapor can be a really dangerous thing to build your life upon. Uh, last week, we were flying home from England. We took, a, we took a group from our church over to a camp. And as we were uh, flying, we had all kinds of travel issues. I don't know if you've had any kind of travel issues, but it really brought this passage about planning to life for me because I had this elaborate plan of how things were going to go and it did not go how I planned. 
But as we were flying in, our connecting flight was in Iceland. And as we were flying over Iceland, the pilot told us to look out the plane because we were about to see a newly erupting volcano. And so I, I had to pull my phone out too to film it as we were flying over. And if you will look close enough, you will actually see the lava spewing out of the ground. How cool is that? How many opportunities do you get to fly over an active volcano? I mean, this is just mind-blowing. But can you guess what I'm thinking as we are getting ready to land? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's rent some cars. We're going to drive this volcano. We are going to watch the lava spew out of the volcano. This is going to be absolutely epic. The problem was um, the vapor was so dangerous the Iceland authorities, they closed off all the roads to get to this volcano because if you breathed this in, you would die. So not only was it deadly to be around these vapors, but it was absolutely impossible because all of the roads have been closed. Now it's important to understand this is exactly what James is doing. This is what James is doing. This is what he's trying to accomplish. He's trying to close down all of the roads for us living a self-absorbed life because the vapors, they're not just passing things. They are absolutely deadly. They're dangerous to, to build our lives trying to live after these vapors. Even, even if the vapors are really attractive, they're really tempting to build our life off of ourselves, in the end, they are deadly. Let's continue reading. Look at verse 15 with me. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So what's their problem? Well, the answer is actually found in that phrase, if the Lord wills. Now, contrary to how this may sound, James is not intending to give us this cute little phrase to tack onto um, our plans after we announce them, almost as if we were to say, hey, um, are you going to go with us uh, to lunch after church? Ah, uh, if the Lord wills. <laughs> hey, um, uh, when you get home tonight, can you take the trash out? <laughs> if the Lord wills. <laughs> hey, I know, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Maybe dishes, throw dishes in there, laundry, huh, anyone? Um, if the Lord wills, yeah. Hey, I noticed rent didn't come in. It's been about a week. Um, are you going to pay rent this week? <laughs> if the Lord wills. Uh, what, hey, um, honey, when you, um, when you get off of work today, can you go pick up the kids from their game? If the Lord, <laughs> no, don't do that. Like, you, you probably want to stay married. The problem here is that these Christians, they... They have built their entire lives, their entire future on being self-sufficient. I can sustain myself. But the problem is that they have excluded God from their life and their planning. God isn't even a small factor on their life or their radar. They are not even pausing to pray. They're not even thinking about, are these actions honorable to God? Is it going to help me grow in my relationship with God? What's worse is they're bragging about this. I can do all of this without God. And this isn't even talking about people in, in the world, people who don't even have any faith. This is talking about Christians in the church. Followers of Jesus have figured out how to compartmentalize their spiritual lives from the rest of their lives. And what they're saying is, hey, God belongs in the church, but everything else in my life, that's mine. 
I can figure out how to live on my own. This kind of approach is what you would call practical atheism. Intellectual atheists are, are, have the, um, they can vocalize and intellectualize their own thoughts about why they don't believe in God, but practical atheism are people who live as if God doesn't exist, or at least their beliefs in God, they actually don't make any difference in their own life. Uh, here's how one commentator put it. They profess Christ, go to church, even read their Bibles, but on a daily practical level, including their work, family, and planning for the future, their professed belief really doesn't guide them. They live a contradiction. They profess Christ, but depend solely on themselves and their hearts as their guide apart from God, which is what these Jewish Christian businessmen were doing. And how convicting, how convicting I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Doesn't this pretty much describe many of the people you know? Does this describe you? I mean, so much of our life, so much of our parenting, so much of our our working are focused on how we can be self-sufficient, not God-dependent, not seeking after God, not seeking after God's own fame. And so we make choices about where we're going to work, where we're going to live, What things we're going to watch? Who's going to watch our kids? Who are we going to marry? What sports am I going to play? What sports am I going to enroll my kids in? All in the name of my life. This is my life. And look, I'm not against any of those things. But we should really ask, as we are living and as we are making plans and making decisions, did God even come into that equation? Did God even become a factor in our life? Have our knees been blistered in prayer as we sought God's leadership in our life, as we sought God in our own plans, in our own living? And and I think if we're brutally honest, we, we can have a tendency to be like the people in this letter that James is talking to, only living and making decisions based on this vapor of a life that we have here. And for so many of us, The underlying desire and planning and living is centered on comfort and control. This is what we build our life around. It feels good just sitting in the driver's seat of our life, calling all the shots, etching into stones our plan and what we confidently are looking forward to down the road. But what we have to understand, and I think this is where James is driving us to, is we have to understand is that ordering life without God disorders all of our life. Ordering life without God, it disorders all of our life. All of our life gets disordered when we, disor- when we order it without him in it. God is the only one who knows the future. God is the only one who is powerful enough, who, who has a, enough control to make things happen in our world. God is the bringer of order. God is the bringer of peace. God is the bringer of eternal life. And this vapor of a life here, it's disorderly. It's chaotic. It is passing. It's like a vapor. You see it and then it's gone. And when we turn from God to depend on ourselves to find stability, to find purpose, to find control, we gotta understand that we are literally moving from the only stable place on planet Earth to something that is not stable. 
And so, when we order our life without God, everything gets disordered. Everything is disjointed. And even if you are some of those people who are able to get through life, get everything that you want, get all the best experiences, you, you just, life just simply works out for you. At the end of your life, your body will fail you and death will be there to meet you. Life is out of our control. And so James wraps up this with these words. James chapter four, verse 17. So whoever knows the right things to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is one of those verses that are, is constantly being hijacked out of its context. The right things that James is talking about involves involving God in all of our life, all of our play, all of our planning. God takes center stage in our life. James does not let us off the hook. He is saying that in this passage, if you hear of the importance of centering your life on God, that God has to be central in everything we do, and we walk away and we are inspired. This is so encouraging. And then we, we walk away and we are inactive in our faith. James says, in essence, you are rejecting God's plan and you are rejecting God himself. <laughs> this is intense, isn't it? But it makes sense. If I say, Jason at 12.30, is gonna buy everybody burgers at uh, Five Guys. You know, we'd say Chick-fil-A, the Christian chicken, but you know, they're not open on Sunday. But if we say that Jason is going to buy everybody Five Guys burgers at uh, 12.30, and you decide that actually I'm gonna go to Panda Express at 1.30, instead, you are rejecting that offer. You're rejecting that plan. So don't be shocked if you show up to Panda and you're not eating a free burger. Similarly, we shouldn't expect God to bless our choices if we have left them out of the process. And if what the Bible tells us about Jesus is true, Jesus should be the most important thing in our life. I love how Paul um, put it in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What Paul is saying is that, that our lives, they start spiritually bankrupt and they will end spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. And then Jesus came for us, not because we had everything together, but because we did not have anything together. And at the cross, Jesus took the spiritual debt that kept us separated from God. And at the cross, that had been canceled, it had been cleared. Now we can have a relationship with God. All of those debts taken care of. Jesus' death brought about the greatest exchange ever possible. He exchanged our broken, perishing lives for his perfect life to give us something that would never perish, something that cannot be wasted. And as a result, when you turn from your, your own life to trust in Christ and his life, we inherit a future that just bends the human imagination. Uh, look at how Paul put this in Romans 8. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is coming is so much better. It is so much greater than anything that can be found here in this life. And the Bible calls us to trust God's lead in our life and in the life to come. And the good news is that God is not like me 
who offers you something that doesn't actually exist, right? God is not gonna give you imaginary ice cream. (laughs) He offers you the real deal. And when you embrace that, it changes your future and it changes your present. It changes every square inch of our life. I love how C.S. Lewis um, describes heaven. I'm gonna paraphrase C.S. Lewis, but he says, heaven, once we get there, it is going to work backwards, turning our present agony into future glory. And if we trust God for our eternity, shouldn't we also trust God in the day-to-day areas of our life and the day-to-day plans that we make? Let me give you three words that I think help us better and more consistently follow God's lead in our life. Here's here's the three words. Seek, trust, obey. Seek, trust, obey. Our lives should be centered on seeking after God. Our lives should be centered on seeking after God. The message of the Bible is that God is not far from any single one of us because this God is the God who is in hot pursuit of you. He is seeking you. Therefore, he can be found. So we should start our days. We should make decisions. We should parent our children or take care of our parents by seeking God. Seeking God first. We should ask questions like, hey, before I accept this job, before I change this area of my life, um, before I have to address this issue that just now cropped up in my own world, before I do any of that, have I sought after God first? Will this help me actually grow in my relationship with God? Is this God honoring? Spend time seeking God in prayer seeking God in his word, seeking God in the community of faith. Look, God speaks to us personally. When we pray, we ask for things, he speaks to us. And a lot of the time, the guidance that we want, the guidance that we need, we can actually find it in his word or we can find it in the community of faith that God has put around us and friends and and mentors and church leaders, that God gives those things to us so that we can hear from him. And when we get an answer, our response has to be leaning in and trust. Trusting that what God has set up is far better than anything that I could have ever imagined and obeying that even if it's not what you initially thought the answer would be. Even if you don't like that answer, lean in and trust in obedience. And I think when we respond like that, we will find that the more we order life with God in it, the more fulfilled and purposeful we will find our lives. And even though we learn a lot through our mistakes, I would suggest that we do not gamble with who we live our life for. Let us learn the wisdom from James, to seek, trust, and obey God's leadership in our life, no matter the call, no matter the cost. A few years ago, um, my good friend, Nolan, I reached out to him. I just hit this really low moment in my life, and I said, Nolan, here's what's going on. Just word vomit all over him. I said, I just need prayer. I just need prayer. So he said, hey, um, would you ever want to move back to the Pacific Northwest? I said, I love to move back home. There's no way. So Nolan ended up giving my name to a guy named Barry Arnold who was at Cornerstone and said, hey, Skylar would do an okay job. I don't know what he said, but that's my interpretation. Skylar's gonna do an okay job um, and he would love to come back home. And so a few months later, Barry emails me and he says, I would love to start a conversation with you about what it would look like to transition back out to here. 
And I was so conflicted because the season that we just came from as a church, we went through a lot of really hard things where we were living. And I thought, I don't know. I, I feel like what God has done here was really hard, but it was really good. And I feel like God can do some really cool things in our church, but I don't know. I'm really conflicted about this. I don't know if I should stay and just continue to be faithful with the ministry God has given me or if I should leave. And so I'm, I'm reading, I'm praying, and I reached out to a good friend uh, by the name of David who was just mentoring me at the time. And I said, David, I really don't know what to do. And he said, you know what? When I was in a situation like that, I had a Mark Twain quote popped in my head. Mark Twain changed my life, all right? And the quote went something like this. 20 years from now, you won't regret the things you did. You'll regret the things you didn't do. And when it was framed like that in my mind, I thought, you know what? I don't want to fail to, to, to not act on what God is doing in my life. Let us not live a life of regret, wondering what it would have been like if we let God lead our life. Don't waste your life. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful to be your kids. With all the stories and the backgrounds, God, all the ways that, that we put our own plans in front of you, that we, that we hinder the work that you want to do in our life. God, we just ask for your forgiveness. We ask that, that you would lead us. Lead us in a direction that you see fit. We ask that you would take control. That you would be the God who is at the center of our heart, our plans, our decision. And Father, we just ask that you would lead us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.